the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and we appreciate you joining us every week on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol's executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She also serves on the board of the National Council on Aging and is a past board chair, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, where she majored in gerontology. Nice to see you. That and that, I feel like I was on that. Here is your life. Are my relatives coming out the door now? Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> Carol passed away just a week ago. Oh no, well, you did not. I did not. But, but we we'll talk about it. I next. know why you're talking about right. that because we are going to talk to Dr. Sharon Prentice, um, and she is the author of Becoming Starlight: A Shared Death Journey from Darkness to Light, and she has an amazing story. Perfectly healthy. But a near-death experience. And, and it's not even, a, it's a shared death experience. A journey, yeah, that's right. So I've heard of near-death experiences. I have not heard of shared death experiences. So it's going to be very interesting to hear what that means. Coming up next. Meanwhile, talking about getting in trouble, all kinds of folks recommend to seniors Get a dog. Get a dog. Get Dogs out. are great companionship. companionship. Right. Go out and walk the dog. Get some exercise. It is the best of all possible worlds. And they love you to death. And they do to death. So the, then the Washington Post comes out with this number that um, falls for older people increased from 1,671 in 2004 to 4,396 in 2017 and that most of those were related to walking dogs on a leash. Wow. <laughs> so, well, I see those people, dog on a leash once Well, they make those print. expandable leashes uh, that folks let that dog weigh off, and those are pretty hazardous. Well, you know, the, the problem is um, that people who are over 65 who fracture their hips, right? So it's usually a broken hip, a broken wrist, um, a broken arm. Um, have a 20 to 30% chance of dying within a year, within a year, um, or higher if they've got a heart attack or, or mild heart disease. And if you fall once, it exponentially increases your chances of falling again. And if you fall twice, that exponentially increases your chances of dying within a year. Wow. So it's like this really scary, you know, um, ride you know roller coaster ride where all things lead to very bad things you know disability and death that's why god made dog walkers so yeah really um so all week since you sent me this article out of the washington post i've been watching people walking their dogs and you do i mean think about it you do see people getting tangled up in the leashes yes walking multiple dogs or even or one really rambunctious dog i could see where some people you know the dog walks them my dog, Lucy, who is a 110-pound German Shepherd, I tripped on her leash in our bedroom, which is carpeted, and fell. And Lucy just licked me and licked me. Yeah, and I love me. you. I hope you're not dead. Here's right. the lick. So, but I was okay. Knock wood. So that, that brings me to the next um, article that we came across. So here I see dog walking is bad because, you know, when somebody's encouraging you, you need to understand the risks. You've got to take the dog for a walk. If you're not in good physical shape, if you're using a leash, which I think you should be if you don't want your dog to go running after other people. Right. I'd hate being chased by dogs. And what if you have a cane and a walker? Yeah, a cane and a walker. I mean, they're, they're, it's a decision. Then, you know, we we get this other article from Jane Brody from the New York Times who's writing about falls can kill you. Um, and there's this whole big long article, falls are the leading cause of fatal and non-fatal energy injuries in older adults every 19 minutes an older person falls in this country wow 
you know, and, and it's 25% of people over the age of 65. So four people in a room, one of them's going to fall this year, guaranteed. And, and people don't believe that statistic, but you get a group of people together and you will look around and you're going to see they may not have died or had an injury. You will see that that statistic is correct. Somebody's fallen. Somebody has fallen. Um, and, and falls are preventable. Uh, age-related falls are preventable. So, um, you know, you don't want to be you know, the person that falls more than once, doubling your chances of falling again. You know, 20% having a serious injury. So she, she goes into what do you do about it? And, and these are things that we practice. And if you're a caregiver, you and the person you're caring for, this is for the whole family. You know, don't just think older person. Need to know this. Need to know this. So if you want to maintain your life and not fall and be one of those people with a broken hip um, or broken wrist, uh, regular exercise. But in particular, things that are really easy like Tai Chi. Tai Chi is not, you know, you're not going to huff and puff and fall over. It's not like running. Um, it's an easy way to work on your balance. If you don't want to do that, here's something my husband actually does because he read this column. Stand on one leg when you brush your teeth or when you're reading a recipe or when you're reading the newspaper at the counter. So just stand on one leg. He brushes And not hold yourself up. And not hold yourself up. He does this every day. When he brushes his teeth, he's always on one leg. And when he started doing that, I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm, I've read this. It's good for my balance and for your strength. So there you go. Um, you want to get your eyes checked once a year uh, because, obviously, if you can't see, I'm one of those people. I have no depth perception. And so in low light, I'm really in trouble. And I like to stay on top of getting my contacts updated and my prescription updated because I, I, I don't see well. Um, you want to get your hearing checked because if you, the other day, here's the example from a cat. I have a cat who's 19 and is deaf as a post. Poor thing. And this, this other giant tomcat came right up behind her. She's eating outside. She didn't hear it. She didn't hear it at all. She turned around and saw that cat, and she jumped as high as the house because she had no idea she was getting snuck up. Wow. On. So get your hearing checked. You know, and then probably this one is the most important, getting your medications checked. There are so many medications, common medications people are on. They interact. That interact or cause, it will increase the likelihood of mm. a fall because they make you woozy. So think about the um, benzodiazepines, your Xanax and your Valium. Think about sleep medications like Ambien and Lunestra. Think about antidepressants like Prozac, Zoloft, Elevil, um, things that lower your blood pressure. They can get it too low. Things that keep you from going to the bathroom all night like Flomax, which so many people are on. Um, if you're on metformin because you have diabetes, uh, anticoagulants, so if you, you know, to keep you from getting a blood clot. Uh, Benadryl is on the never take it list. You never want to take Benadryl if you're over 65. So, um, and then last but not least is that home environment. So, Ron, do you have area rugs? No. We Throw do not. rugs? No. And why not. is that? Because you'll slip on them or they'll slip and you'll fall. That's right. And you'll s- hit your head and die. Yeah, and you'll hit your head and die. So, not only do you not want the clutter, the things on the floor, the dog leash, um, we and could the, use more grab bars. And the, uh, and the area rugs, you want to have grab bars, you know, the, where the carpet's up in one corner. That's yes. not an area rug, but you can still trip well, on let me, it. Let me change that a moment. We do have a long runner in our front hall that I always trip over. There you go. Always. You know, and but Jane, I don't fall. Jane Brody was saying she gave away a perfectly good pair of brand new Uggs shoes, you know, the big boots. Right. I love Uggs. Because they... They cause your feet to stick. You know, sometimes those crepe soles will stick. Right, I catch. have shoes that catch. And so she got rid of it. So if you got something that you're tr- currently tripping over, if it's your phone cord, you know, I, 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 we have talked about how I broke my collarbone talking on the telephone in the old days of phone cords or extension cords or plugging in your phone to charge it. I mean, then the last thing is keep a light on at night. If you don't, at least have a flashlight by the bedside. Our good friend Evelyn Greb, who does the telecon- caregiver teleconnection, uh, was at a, a house visiting, and she didn't have a flashlight. She got confused, turned left instead of right, and went down a flight of stairs. 
and broke her kneecaps. Seriously. And I, sorry, Evelyn, you, that was years ago. Wow. And I know that you've recovered nicely from that. Um, but mm. I have to tell that story because it's just so awful. Yes. <laughs> it's just so awful. But for a right turn. But for, yeah, wrong turn, Ooh. you know, because at her house, she turned right and I left in the house, the other house, she didn't. So um, falls are not unusual. One in four people look around the room. Somebody's going to fall this I year. I run into more and more people to talk about their dad having fallen. That's Yes, yes. And we offer programs like Matter Balance. Right. There are a lot of in communities across the country. You can find a falls prevention program. The interesting thing about like the Matter Balance is when you've had a fall or if you someone you know has fallen, you become afraid you're going to fall. And guess what? Fear of falling causes you to fall. Because you stop doing things, right? Oh, I'm not going to get out. Oh, you stop doing those activities. You shuffle your feet. You reach for things to hold on to. Those are exactly the things that will cause you to fall. That's just amazing. So a little exercise, look around the room, check out the drugs. You know, Remember We had a guest the other day talking about folks who don't use their walkers who do furniture walking. Furn- and you were saying you were a furniture walker. I was for a brief period of time. That's right. If, and if you need... Uh, adaptive equipment, for goodness sakes, use it. It might be ugly and embarrassing for a while, um, but A, you'll get over it, and B, it's it's better than dead, right? I think it's It'll better than dead. save your life. Yeah, and who cares? You know, paint it hot pink or bright blue chartreuse. Make it your own. So my son Mitch shares depth perception problems with you. I got the best call a parent could ever get. He was in the Naval Academy choosing his career and what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a Navy SEAL, and he called me. Shortly after going to training, and he said, Dad, I've, I've got really sad news. I said, what? He said, well, I have a depth perception problem, and they won't let me jump out of airplanes because I can't judge where the ground is. Oh, great. So I was torn between doing a happy dance and saying, Mitch, that makes me so happy that you're not going to be a Navy SEAL between but that yes. and saying, oh, I'm sorry. Well, and which did you choose? I said, I'm sorry. Well, good choice, Dad. Good. And then laugh. Very good choice. And then when you hung out, you went, yes. Yeah, exactly. No jumping out of airplanes. No. What else you got? What hospice does and doesn't do. Speaking of speaking. Well, this is, so the whole show. Death. death, death you know, coming up. Sharon Prentice on shared death experience. On a shared death experience. You're going to want to hear that story. It's, fasc- it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I, and I think that spiritual health. Um, and just the whole spirit, you know, thinking about our spirit. It's, it's something we don't talk about a lot. Uh, but I found this article on Next Avenue on, about, on what hospice does or doesn't do. So hospice is you're only expected to have six months to live. It's a Medicare benefit. It's a benefit in commercial insurance. Um, and the sad thing is, is a lot of people don't take part in it. What's important to know about hospice is it's you've, you've reached a point where you say, I'm not going to the emergency room. I'm not going to aggressively fight this illness anymore. I'm going to be comfortable, pain-free, and I'm going to choose to be at home or assisted living. You're going to choose someplace uh, to be. And so just know that hospice doesn't cover that room and board. When you're in assisted living, you still have to pay for that. You can get hospice at home. You don't have to be in a skilled right. facility. But hospice will come into a skilled facility. My mother was on hospice and assisted living. I loved it because it was staff devoted 100% to her. Which you don't get Which you don't in, get. In yeah, you don't get otherwise. Um, and, yeah. and, that, and that pain-free, that focusing on the quality of life and, and having that decision, you know, of, of how, they're going, how you want to live your life. And they'll help with bathing and dressing, um, you know, all, well, that stuff. All, all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, it, there are, um, if you think somebody has less than six months to live, have that conversation ahead of time. Talk about hospice. People wait too long. And then when you get on it, you're going to say, why in the world right. didn't we do this exactly. sooner? Carol Zerniel, thank you. Up next, Sharon Prentice. We talk about her shared death experience on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer.
Well, we are so pleased you are riding along with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. As we promised, Dr. Sharon Prentice will be joining us in a moment. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Dr. Prentice is a graduate of George Mason University with a degree in clinical psychology. George Mason, by the way, as you may or may not know, sits outside of Washington, D.C. And a couple of years ago, if you're a basketball fan, folks became aware of it because they went high up into the Final Four, uh, which was unusual, but it was great for George Mason University. And uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Prentice about her work in dealing with issues involving end of life and the struggle involved with dying. And I want to ask you, Dr. Prentice, and thank you, first of all, for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is great. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, good. In some of the information that they sent us, there's a a sentence that just piqued my curiosity. It said you got involved in this whole question of uh, something more, something special, uh, what happens in approaching end of life because of your unusual personal experience with death. Right. What happened? Oh, all kinds of things happened. It really started when uh, I lost my daughter. And then years later, a few years later, I lost my husband. And at that moment, I had an experience that is called a shared death experience. It's basically the same thing as a near-death experience, except the person going on the journey is not, most of the time, they're not sick, they're not dying, they're, they haven't died, they're perfectly well. They're just invited along for what I like to call a peek into foreverness. So that's why I got really involved in this, because I wanted to know what in the world was this, and does it happen to other people, too? So so just to clarify, so you actually, like, let's say, let's use the classic white light that a person at eye sees a, a bright white light that you, as a person who was, did not pass away, um, right. were able to see that same light to have that yes. experience. Yes, I was taken with them. It's, I tell people it's a invitation to which there is no RSVP. You are just taken along for the ride, and you get to see as much of, what do you want to call it, the afterlife, foreverness, whatever word you would like to give it, you get to see as much as you are allowed to see. What did you see? Uh, well, I, I saw, I, it starts, see, I still stutter when I think about this because it's still a very difficult thing um, to explain, but mine started in starlight. Uh, when my husband died, uh, the stars, I have said the stars came to get me. There were billions and billions and billions of them, it seems like. I could see each one of them separate and distinct, and yet at the same time, it was this one enormous light. And people have asked me, was it a white light? And I can't really say that it was a color because it was something I had never, ever seen before. So I don't say it was white. It was just purity as purity must have looked on the first day of the universe. That's the way I've always described it. It was just the most amazing thing in the world. And when I finally got my bearings, I was being held within this presence um, that was within the stars and standing right there in front of me was my husband. Uh, When he died, he didn't even weigh 90 pounds, and he was a big man. He weighed over 200 when he wasn't sick, six foot four, 200 pounds, and he was... 90-some pounds when he died, and there he was standing in front of me, looking exactly the way he did when he was well, and I knew that he was alive and well where we were, and I don't call it heaven, I call it that place uh, for a very specific reason, but that's, that's kind of what I saw. Did he seem aware that you were there with him? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was standing in front of me, smiling at me, and I was smiling at him, You know, it was funny. I didn't feel the need to have any major conversations with him, but at a time like that, you would think that you would come up with the most profound thing to say, you know, something that that would last for eternity, you know, this really profound statement. All I could say was, I can see you, you know. Uh (laughs) And he, uh, it it was just, he was looking at me, I was looking at him, and there was no need to touch each other or have any major, you know, conversation. We just knew that each other was going to be just fine if things were exactly the way they were supposed to be. How did you then separate? Well, at some point, okay, I was being held within this presence, okay? When the stars came to get me, I went very freely. I wasn't afraid. Um, It was the most inviting, amazing feeling, one that I, I knew I had felt it before somewhere, 
and I have described it as knowing that I was going home because that's exactly what it felt like. So I went within this presence, and I was held in place by this presence. And the time eventually came when Steve's smile changed. It, he still had a smile on his face, but it was one of those smiles like when you're saying goodbye to someone, you know, it becomes this, not sad, but this, I'll see you later, you know, I've, I've liked being with you, and one of those smiles. And he just kind of disappeared from my view, and it was fine. I knew where he was going, that he was going where our daughter was going to be, and I was peaceful, and I knew everything was going to be fine. So I just closed my eyes and, and stayed within this presence, and he just kind of disappeared from my view, going on to where his place was out there. I had no reason. I had no purpose to be where he was going. So I wasn't allowed to go any farther than where I was. So when you, you said you closed your eyes, so at, you know, was it a, did it seem like a long time before you came back to the present? Or was um, it like instantaneous all, all at the same no, time? No, no. I wanted to stay. I, I wanted to stay right where I was because it was, I, I was home. I knew this place. I have described it as saying it was a long ago forgotten memory and it was the most comforting. It was one of those places, you know, you're all wrapped up in your favorite blanket and you don't ever want to get out of bed. It, it was one of those I wanted to stay. But I knew I was allowed to stay in that peaceful state uh, for only uh, uh, maybe 20 minutes or so. There really wasn't any time. Time is not a function of your reality when you're in one of those um, experiences. But I could feel the feeling, that peace and that calm starting to go away. And so I knew I was transitioning back to where I was supposed to be. I tried to stay. I really did. I, I tried to tried hang to on. Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to stay, but didn't matter how much I begged or bargained or whatever. I didn't have any purpose there, and so it was time, and I was just sent back to that dingy little hospital room. All right, hold that spot. We're going to come right back to Sharon Prentice. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernel. I want to remind you, if you've just joined us, you're listening to 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Caregiver SOS On Air, and Dr. Prentice is talking about becoming starlight, and she mentioned how that felt. A shared death journey from darkness to light. And I guess, Dr. Prentice, uh, when you got back, you felt like you were back in that hospital room. Uh, was it like waking up from a dream? All the details were there but slowly slipping away, or you held on to them? I held on to it for a while. I, I wanted to hold on to it forever. Um, I'm going to say that I was able to hold on to just about all of it for that and the rest of that evening. I started to lose it when we were in the car uh, going back to my home, and I can remember looking at the stars. You know, I put my head out the window. It was a warm April night, and I kind of put my head out the window so I could look up at the stars, and I did everything I could to find that one little prick of starlight that would come back and get me. And I told myself, don't let this go, don't let this go, because it was just such an amazing feeling. But... I mean, I realize that physical form, human beings are just not supposed to have that type of feeling within their bodies forever. I honestly don't think that we could survive it because it, that doesn't belong in this, in this world. I don't think we could handle feeling that way all the time. So I eventually lost most of the feeling, and I tried forever. Everything you can think of, I tried to get back to it. Um, but I've never been able to get myself right back into that particular moment. Close, but no cigar. <laughs> well, let, I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, you had these two ex these experiences, losing your mm -hmm. daughter and losing your husband, which is yeah. so unimaginable to, to most of us, what, you know, the difficulty in going through that. But then right. you had this other experience that, that sounds like, um, it changed your, your thinking. It, it changed the way you viewed this death experience. It changed everything. It, it changed everything. You know, as a child, you're, you're taught what God is and what he's not. You're taught where he lives. And, you know, he's this guy outside of you that lives up in heaven somewhere. You know, the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments look, you know, one of those. And that's what I believed, and I realized that when you're children, you have to be presented with these pictures so you can understand it. 
Um, and that, that's kind of what I believed all along. So when I knew right after my daughter was born and I knew that she was dying, that was really the first time that I ever confronted what I thought was faith and what I thought was God. And I, I found out very quickly um, that just saying you have faith, well, that doesn't mean anything if you truly don't know what it is. And begging and borrowing and, and bargaining and, and you know, crying out and praying to this thing that you thought was God, you find out very quickly that that was absolutely not the case. And so I became, when she died, I became the angriest, most bitter, just horrible person. You wouldn't want to be around me. I, If there was a God, I hated him. And no one even wanted to talk about anything good in life uh, because I didn't want to hear it. And I stayed that way for a very long time. I hated death. I set up this this existential revenge plan, okay? I was going to beat God at his own game if he did exist, and I was going to win over death so nothing bad was ever going to happen in my life again. But then when my husband got sick and I saw the way that was going as much as I wanted to deny it, the battle between me and this non-existent entity that I still didn't know uh, became almost violent in my own mind. Um, and it, it was... It was the most challenging. It was just horrible. I can't even find a word for what it was. You know, I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I didn't do anything. I I set about trying to control everything in my life and every chance I got to speak against any type of benevolent God. Believe me, I took it. All right. Hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. But uh, what was your daughter's name? Stephanie. Stephanie. Thank you. Right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking with Sharon Prentice on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, we're hearing an incredible story about Sharon Prentice's experience with death, death of her daughter, death of her husband, and how she experienced a moment in which she traveled partway with her husband, heading to wherever he was headed after he died. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Well, Sharon, um, you know, this, you came to us because this life-changing experience, this experience with death, um, mm-hmm. influenced the work that you do. So yeah. can you tell us the how you took this experience and how you use it um, to help other people. Sure. In the beginning, right after this experience, I so wanted to hang on to this. And, of course, you start to lose it, you know, as the days go by and the days go by. And I was actually in school at the time, and I decided, you know, if I work with terminally ill people, maybe... It was a very selfish thought. I mean, it really was. People say to me, oh, it's so great that you do that. Well, no, it wasn't in the beginning. It was a very selfish reason that I got into it because I thought if I'm with someone as they're dying, maybe I can hitchhike a ride, you know, and they'll take me back to that place. Of course, it never happened again. But what happened was I found that, you know, the fear, especially in our society, the fear of death and dying and illness, we never talk about it. We deny it. We don't even give the people that we love the opportunity to talk to us about how they're feeling if they are the ones that are facing their own mortality. We just kind of gloss over everything because we're, we're so anxious about it, and we fear it so much. And I saw that on such a personal level with family after family after family. So one of these days I just, I just opened my mouth, and someone said to me, should I be afraid? The last chapter in the book is actually titled, Should I Be Afraid? Because what I started doing, I'd say, let me tell you a story. And I started using my story, of what happened to me, to try and alleviate some of the fear and anxiety that the family, and especially the person um, who is dying, uh, what, everything that they're experiencing. I know I can't take away all the fear. If I could, believe me, I would. But to give someone a glimpse, just just a glimpse of what is waiting for them. That's what I try to do. And that just led 
from, you know, working in the hospitals with a terminally ill and then going to hospice and then, you know, private practice with, with the families even after someone has died because, you know, that's such a mystery as to, you know, what's out there. And, you know, the more mysterious something is in this life, the more we think we can understand it. And for me to be able to say, listen, I do not understand everything, but here is what I do understand because here is what I saw and here is what I felt. So just using my story with people has helped to alleviate that fear and has helped so many people uh, be able to discuss with their loved ones all the things that they want to be able to discuss. Now, I'm just curious, are you extrapolating from your own experience uh, to the world at large that everyone will experience that kind of passage? And have you had a chance to talk with anyone who's had a similar experience? Oh, yeah, I've talked to all kinds of people um, in the near-death community, and and people are starting to come out, I'm going to say in the last seven or eight years, talking about their shared death experiences. You know, the biggest question is, why do some people have it and why do others not? And I don't have an answer to that question. I don't think anyone does. Um, And as far as... uh, This is starting to be researched everywhere, the shared death experience, because what they're finding is that the old medical model for the near-death experience where they talk about, you know, the lack of oxygen and, and, and what happens to the brain when you die, that cannot be explained in the SDE. You cannot use that uh, medical model to say, well, you had a loss of oxygen or, or this happened in your body because the people who have had this experience, they're well. And how do you explain what has happened other than there is really something out there and there is really this creative force i call it god i mean i do and this creative force can grant these divine gifts whenever it kind of wants to you know and this goes back just hundreds of years if you go all the way back to saint Teresa, she talked about it in interior mansions and people have been talking about this forever and ever and ever and and they're starting to hone in on divine gifts and centering prayer and contemplative prayer and, you know, the, the sacred words that maybe take you into this, this fibrous netting that creates the universe and the vibratory experiences, you know, that somehow people are tapping into that, and that just kind of takes you and shows you the way things really are in the universe. Well, you know, in in our Caregiver SOS program under the Wellmed uh-huh. Charitable Foundation, what we know is that the spiritual life of the people that we're working with, the families, is uh-huh. such an important part. Um, yeah. And sometimes, as you know, in the in a in a very strict clinical white coat world, um, right. we might miss some of that and not address the spiritual needs of the right. family. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That I address that much more than I do any medical um, concerns that they have. Of course, I'm not an MD, so that wouldn't be my job anyway. But I carried the, the clinical, the secular psychology just wasn't enough for me. I needed to be able to address the spiritual side because people, you're right, people just don't talk about that. And, you know, death and dying and caregiving, it's such a sacred, it's such a sacred moment from start to finish. I mean, it really is. I think it's more sacred than birth. I really do. Um, because I don't know about you, but I believe that the spirit, the soul, starts to actually disconnect from the body before the actual moment of death. And there are so many things that people want to say if we just give them that opening to say it. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You just sometimes you have to be the loudest so that people hear you and they know it's okay that they can now say, I love you, or let me tell you what's happening here and let me tell you what's happening there. Lisa's smart. I don't know if you've ever talked to Lisa. No, we have not. Oh, Lisa's amazing. She's someone you should talk to. She and Raymond Moody really good friends of mine, and and Lisa wrote a book uh, called Words at the Threshold. And what she did is research, she researched people as they were dying, and she actually wrote down 
the last words that they were saying, you know, over the last couple of weeks and especially the last couple of days. And a lot of times people will say, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But when the family started to research those words, the stories that they discovered and the things they discovered about that person and about their family, the people that had already passed on. It, it's really amazing. If you haven't read that book, I would honestly recommend that to you because it, it's, it's an amazing book to read, and it does help the families to understand that when someone is talking and it may seem like it's delusion or nonsense or, you know, whatever, pay attention to it and try and have a conversation where you can ask whatever questions that you can ask and the things you'll find out and what they're trying to tell you about who they're seeing or where they're going or what's happening with them is absolutely amazing. It's fascinating. Well, now, do you bring people together? I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your bio and you, um, you, you've got behavioral therapy, group therapy, family mm-hmm. therapy. So yep. do you bring groups together or is yeah. it usually one-on-one to, to talk about, you know, death and experiences and spiritual life? I do both. I do both. It, it normally starts out one-on-one until people are, are ready to share. You know, it, it, take, it takes a lot. It really does. It takes a lot, especially in our society, for people to really open up and say, here I am. You know, no one wants to be judged. And even at this sacred time in their lives, when they're either losing their life or someone they love is, or even being a caretaker for someone who may not necessarily be terminal, but, you know, someone who, who definitely needs that help. It takes a lot to get someone to put themselves in a vulnerable position. So most often I start out one-on-one, and then maybe someone in the family will come in. And, and then what would happen is I will bring two or three families together, and pretty soon, you know, we can have a big group of these people with everybody sharing because it's in that sharing. Somebody might say something, one word that could set someone on fire, you know, and open up their spirit. And, and then the conversation just gets going, and it, it's, a, it's a really wonderful thing to see. Now, this experience that you described and the kind of therapy that you're offering, uh, is it mm-hmm. specific only to Christians? What about Buddhists, Wiccans, no. Jews? No, as a matter of fact, I, <laughs> it's funny you ask that. I have just about every, everything you can think of. Um, I have people who are Jewish. I have people who are uh, from Islam. I have, of course, Christians. I have I have one girl that identifies as an atheist. Um, I have just I have I have just about everything you can think of. I turn no one away because you, it, it's so hard to explain. No, it's not hard to explain now that I really think about it. When I was in that experience, trust me when I tell you, if anyone should have been judged, it was me for the things that I said and did after I lost my daughter. I was really just not a nice person. So if anyone should have been judged, if there was any type of judgment that we all hear about, if there was any type of sending anybody into these burning fires of hell, okay, if there was anyone who was better than anyone else, I did not feel that at all, at all. Matter of fact, the, the absolute love and joy and peace if you can imagine every human emotion that you could feel, good or bad, going through every single one of them to arrive at just being, okay? That's what I found in that place. So I do not turn anyone away because we're all going there, okay? We are, every single one of us, regardless of what we are, uh, what we identify with. Most of the times we identify with the religion that was given to us when we were born. Okay, we have no choice in it. It's very few people who actually make that connection that, oh, hey, this is, this, this is my family's tradition, but that's not necessarily what I want to be, and it's hard to break out of that. But when all of us pass, we're all going to that same place. So why, why not work with everybody? When you say Anyone that, a, I'm sorry, when you say that same okay. place... What, what do you mean? Um, I don't call it heaven. And the reason I, I always call it, I call it that place. And the reason I call it that is because if I were to say I was in heaven, the first thing that comes to people's minds are those pictures that they were given when they were children. Okay, you know, the, the, the clouds and the streets and the, you know, all of that stuff. And I don't want people to think that that's, what 
I found, and I do not want anyone to have a description of my growing up, of my picture of what heaven is when I say to them I was in that place. Because when I say that place, then they are going to know in their own minds. I'm not going to put anything in anybody's mind where they say, oh, that's not what I believe. I'm not there to cast judgment or to tell somebody this is exactly the way it's going to be. And that's the first reason I don't say heaven. And the second reason I say that place is because Steve moved on. Steve moved to another another place where I knew he was going to be with our daughter, and I wasn't allowed to go there. So was I in heaven, or was I in the place where I was supposed to be? Well, it's a fascinating story, and you have a book. Um, so if people want to learn more um, about uh, a shared journey from darkness to light, becoming starlight, uh, where would they get the book? Well, actually, the easiest place to get it is on Amazon. Isn't there you everything? go, Amazon. You know? Yeah, but it's also um, Barnes and Noble and your indie stores. And do you have um, a website? I do. It's uh, com. Got to stop you right there. We are flat out of time. But thank you so much. You painted such a beautiful picture. I'm sitting here thinking, that would not be a bad place That's to be. That's not such a bad thing. I think that brings a lot of hope to folks. <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. You take care. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you so much. You Bye-bye. take care. Sharon Prentice on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernio. Guess who's next? Dr. Jamie Heisman. Take 10. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We thank you for joining us on Take 10. We do this segment after each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs right here on 930 AM, The Answer. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. And Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is with us. I'm Ron Aaron. And you've got an interesting topic that... Uh, so many families face, Carol. Well, it, you know, recently we had Dr. Jamie on the Caregiver Teleconnection, which we have talked about our telephone teleconference uh, free education program. Yeah, we talked about it last week. And, um, and Jamie, you did a session on the car key conversation. And I know we've talked about this before, um, but there are caregivers out there right now who are thinking about their moms and dads and spouses and brothers and sisters and thinking, oh, my goodness, they should not be driving anymore. So, you know, that's a tough conversation. We actually had a gentleman tell us, that's a death sentence. You take away my car, that's a death sentence. So what do we say to that? We call it in the clinical world a traumatic event. And it could cause incredible depression and loss. And, you know, losing that ability um, is, is, is the biggest blow to one's independence. So you see your life kind of before your eyes. But, you know, there's some point family caregivers have to be concerned about their loved ones. I want to make a very clear uh, exclamation point, uh, point here, observation, that it's not about age, okay, Age alone is never going to be a reason to take away your loved one's uh, ability to drive. That should be clear to all caregivers. I mean, seniors, like I said, I have a 91-year-old father who is, is tremendously on the ball. I've seen 50-year-old drivers that uh, would take the keys away tomorrow. Um, but it, it, just understand that this is about cognitive issues and that what we see as family members is what I call observable behavior when we all get together and um, – 
we don't really want to hesitate to act because we can see that there's a real challenge here and, and somebody's going to get hurt, whether it's somebody on the street or whether our, our loved one uh, themselves. Well, and, and that's it. I mean, the choices are not good. When somebody can no longer drive, it's they could hurt somebody else. They could hurt themselves. Um, this is a, you know, a catch-22 scenario, and it can be both. They can wipe out somebody else while killing themselves. And, and Jamie, one of the things I've always heard you say is don't be the bearer of that message if you're the caregiver <laughs> or the spouse or the loved one. Right. And, and really, case in point, thank you for teeing that up. The messenger always gets killed on this conversation. I mean, let's face it, the caregiver will be out there in the backyard uh, with RIP above them. But, you know, that's not to say that I don't believe that you really should, if somebody can cognitively handle it and you have a good, strong relationship with them. You can broach the subject and have a candid talk with your loved ones, believe it or not, and try to reach a voluntary agreement. I mean, that's really important, I think and have them consider alternatives, you know, for the transportation and to have their faculties. But, but don't approach them like it's a conclusion. It becomes a control struggle. And when somebody locks down to a control struggle, uh, it's like a matter of faith. You, you just can't get any, any further. So if your loved one says no, that's what I guess this, this particular program and our discussion is about. Well, I think the critical piece there was if they're cognitively intact. So somebody that has some sort of dementia um, that really does not know where they're going, their sense of direction is gone, or they don't know how to operate the vehicle. I always tell the story when I was in Florida, one of my uh, Alzheimer's clients, his family was sitting on the porch one day, and they saw, you know, Daddy drove down the road in his pickup to the stop sign at the corner, and then they saw him put it in reverse and start backing up the road. Well, the road was a state highway, and it's on a logging path. And so he's backing up down the road, and there's a logging truck coming over the hill towards Daddy. And I'll be darned if Daddy didn't even blink. He didn't swerve. The logging truck, thank God, Florida, northwest Florida is flat as a flitter, um, went around him on the shoulder without having a wreck. Daddy continued backing up the highway because he had gotten to the end of the drive, and he didn't know whether to turn right or left. So he just threw it in reverse to go back home. Wow. Oh, that, that's a great, great example. And, 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 again, there's a lot of denial, but also there's a lot of things associated with this. So let's just assume that seniors will rarely agree with their family members because it's such a huge traumatic issue. Then you really do have to set up what I call as a, a caregiver intervention, but do it quite strategically because, like Ron just said, you can't do this ongoing uh, where the messenger gets killed. What you need to do is really, as a family, come together, all of you, and, and, and get together and realize that you can't be the messenger. But you can ask the licensed physician, if you will, to be that messenger. And an aging individual has a relationship, usually it's a strong one, with a physician. That physician could be their internal medicine doc, primary care doc, ophthalmologist in case it dies. Um, and if the doctor won't do it, because for some odd reason, I think you may have the wrong doctor, after they see all the observable behavior by the caregivers, they should do it because they're at risk, too, and they certainly have uh, malpractice, and something happens on their watch, something had happened. Then you need to get an elder care attorney involved, the state of motor, you know, the motor vehicle group. But what needs to occur is that this information needs to come from the professional, not from the caregivers. Then the caregivers who are also there and have offered this observable behavior, can come around their loved one and say, it's out of our hands. It's obviously in the hands of the, the, the state and, and, our, and your professional. We're here to support you. We'll drive you where you need to go. We have the schedule. You have nothing to worry about. We're here for that reason. We love you. So it is not them imparting information, but instead them coming together to be the alternative support. Stick with us a minute. For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. That's the end of each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs when Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. And, Dr. Jamie, that makes a good point. Carol wanted to jump in. Well, you were talking about um, having that, that third party, the doctor, the um, elder law attorney, or the motor vehicles. Um, you know, I know one family that 
every time you know their mother would try to get in the car keys, they'd say, you know, we need to have your driver's, you know, you, your driver's license is expired. We need to get you a driving test, and 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 then we can give you the car keys back. And she would say, oh yes, um, I, I that's right. I've got to take my driving test. Well, she never took the driving test, and they never gave her the car keys. Um, so that's and that a, worked, and, and that worked in that particular scenario. But I have known of people where the DMV said you didn't pass that test, and they're the bad guys. So for those caregivers who are listening, Jamie, of all the things over the years I have learned from you, this is at the top of my list, and I have used this technique again and again, professionally and personally with not being the bad guy and I think your point of letting somebody else be the bearer of bad news so you how much better it is to be the good guy I love you I'm going to be there to drive you you know here we are as a family we're going to take turns or here's a your uber number here's the app on your phone push it anytime you want to ride it's my credit card that we're going to pick up the bills you know whatever it is rides aren't as hard as they're getting easier thank goodness when the self-driving cars come uh but being the good guy the one on the white horse that says i love you and we have a solution that's going to take the place of of this is not a loss for you you're still going to get to go to coffee every morning you're still going to get to go you know run your errands Absolutely. In this particular model, I mean, by the way, you're right. Uber and Lyft already have come, you know, around and they, they're very good with seniors and, and actually dealing with this. Uh, they get it. I've seen the presentations by them. But to our listening audience, this is also issued, this is also the process by very, di- deal with difficult behavior of any sort, meaning even skilled nursing and assisted living facilities. And I'll be very brief. I used to do addiction interventions all the time. Later in my career as a clinician, I started doing this exact type of intervention where I got a licensed person involved um, when somebody needed to really go to a skilled facility or assisted living. I did not allow the caregivers to be the ones to get into a control struggle with their loved one. There was too many ghosts and goblins. So really do this strategically. Make sure you're in a support group. And if you have guilt and issues like that, make sure you're in therapy and, and have a safe place to be able to talk about it. But that is really the template. Uh, how to do it. Like you just said, you don't have to fall on the sword. Allow somebody else to, and then we support them. Now, that's great advice. And, Carol, is Dr. Jamie's teleconnection discussion available online through our brand new our new website, newlookcaregiversos.org. Look up our posted teleconnection sessions. You can hear the long version of Dr. Jamie's presentation on the teleconnection, <laughs> the long version, uh, all the details and the That's questions. Cool. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. Flat out of time. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We will talk with you soon on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.